You may be surprised that I chose this chapter for today. For those who read the Bible superficially, this final chapter of this long letter is a throwaway chapter. All it seems to be about are private practical matters of a local church that existed 2,000 years ago, and therefore, how can it have much to do with us? But I would say, after looking deeply at the contents of this chapter, you can't understand the letter to the Corinthians without chapter 16. Chapter 16 explains a lot. Chapter 16 tells us about Paul, the man. It shows us what drives the man. It explains why he would address this troubled church the way he did in the previous 15 chapters. This chapter causes me to question myself. Do I think about the people in Solid Rock Church, my church, the way Paul thinks about these people? And I'd encourage, as we go through this chapter, I'd encourage you to ask yourself the question, do I think about my brothers and sisters in my church the way Paul thinks about people in this church? Most of you, not all of you, know the story. Paul founded this church at great personal cost. When he arrived and people were converted, they immediately wanted to make him a patron of one of the members of the church so he could be paid. He refused to receive any money from them and instead set himself up working in a leather shop by day where he could work and witness and then teach at other times. His message caused friction in the community. At one point, he was hauled into court by his own countrymen, the Jews of the city. But the church was established, and it was a church. It was a miracle. Then he left. He had other things, other places to go, other things to do. After he left, things did not go well. The church needed a lot of correction. That's what this letter is. It's extended answering questions and correcting their behavior and their attitudes. As time went on, following the reception of this letter, his relationship with the church was even more strained. He made a visit that he referred to in 2 Corinthians as my painful visit. And even after that, false apostles came in and sought to undermine his reputation and his message. But what you find... And what you're going to find from chapter 16 is that Paul's quarrel with this church was a lover's quarrel. Paul is a model of how to apply the gospel to conflict. Anyone who holds any position of leadership in the church, in the home, in your business, in education, in government, can learn from this courageous and yet gentle leader. So here's the one takeaway. People always think, what's he getting at when he preaches this sermon? Let me tell you what I'm getting at. Here's what I want you to hear. Faith in Jesus Christ produces love. Faith produces love. Faith produces a love that gives to those who can't give back. Faith produces a love that yields position and prominence. 
Faith produces a love that obeys the commands of Christ. Faith produces a love that defers and submits to others. Faith produces a love that does not withhold affection when people disagree with you or withhold their support from you. Faith produces a love that never yields when the gospel is at stake. Faith in Jesus Christ produces a love that binds the church together. See, when you, when you see, when you encounter the love of God in the face of Jesus Christ, it utterly transforms you. You become literally a different person. And what happens is you, you start to think about people the way God does. You start loving people. You start loving even difficult people. See, it was this love that we're going to see in this chapter that bound this church together. It bound Paul to this troubled church, and it's the only thing that would bind the Corinthian church together. Only love can bind a church together. So what we're going to see in this chapter is a stream of examples of Paul just loving on this church and loving on others. So we're going to first look at his love for his countrymen who had given birth to the church in Jerusalem, and as a result, he'd end up in Corinth preaching the gospel. Then we're going to look at Paul's love for his co-workers. Then we're going to look at his love to the members of the church at Corinth. So let's look. We're going to go through the passage section by section. Let's read verses 1 through 4. Paul's love for his countrymen, the Jews. Now, concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the church of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside something and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Now, it doesn't say in this passage, but we know from a parallel passage in Romans 15 that this was a collection to support the poor in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem had many very poor people. We know in Acts 6 we learned that the early church in Jerusalem had a disproportionately large number of widows who depended on the church for their food. We know from Acts 7 and 8 that the church early on suffered severe persecution. Stephen was murdered, one of the leaders in the church, and many people had to leave their homes and flee Jerusalem to go to other places to escape this persecution. We know from Acts 11 that the city underwent a severe famine. So Paul is sent, when he is converted, he is told that God had chosen for him to be an apostle to the Gentiles, to non-Jews. And so over a 10-year period, he founds churches in some of the richest cities in the Roman Empire. Ephesus, Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth. These were centers of 
commerce. These were centers of favor in the empire. These were places where you would go to get wealthy. And so he asked these churches and churches in Galatia, which he founded on his first missionary journey, to every week put some money aside so when he came they'd have it all saved up and they could just give it to him. They wouldn't have to go looking for money when he arrived. They'd all have it stored away. And then he would send a delegation with this money to Jerusalem. And they would give it to the church to distribute to the poor. Now there were theological reasons for him to do this. I'm not going to go into them today. But this man loved his countrymen. And that is unexpected. This is an unexpected move because throughout Paul's ministry, he experienced constant resistance from his countrymen. Often in the form of beatings, stonings, imprisonment, and getting hauled before the local magistrate. What you would expect is that he'd move beyond his ethnic background. The Gentiles, that's where it's at. God called me to the Gentiles. That's where I should go. But love drove Paul to give. So he gave himself to his countrymen again and again, like a punching bag. He'd bring the gospel to the Jews. That's the first place he went, every city he went. And so he gave himself and raised money so that he could relieve the suffering of the poor in Jerusalem, even though he had little personal contact with these brothers and sisters. It's actually when he delivers this money to the city that he's ultimately arrested and imprisoned and sent to Rome. This is an element of Christian love is that you give to people, you sacrifice for people who can never give back to you. It may seem glamorous to some of you to be sent on a jet to the other side of the globe to help a church in Seoul, Korea, or in India, or in Burma. I feel beat up just flying to Austin, Texas and back. And yet your pastor goes to a place that he'll never get anything back from. He's established relationships with people I have met who represent many people who are just looking for a church like this. Longing for a church like this. And uh, that's what I love about Larry. He, he, it's a way to serve people who will never give back to him. So you should be happy to have a pastor who turning 60 years old is willing to make these kinds of trips. And you should be like him. And think about how you can give and go to benefit others. Because the love that binds a church together is a love that gives to people who will never give back to you. Secondly, we want to read about Paul's love for his co-workers in the gospel. Let's read verses 5 through 11. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia... For I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I'll stay with you, or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. 
But I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Paul saw the entire church as, you know, when we talk about fundraising now, we talk about partners together and partnering. Well, that's just an echo of what Paul was. But Paul was a partner with people he was friends with. He was, Paul, he was, he was a partner with people who knew him and he knew. And he was free to depend on them. When he says, so that you may help me on my journey in verse 6, uh, that would be in, in a Roman culture. They, you, you would understand hospitality was a big deal in the ancient world. Okay, if someone came to your home and didn't have a place to stay, you, that he stayed with you, you fed him, you protected him, you took care of him. And then you would send him on his way. And the way you'd send him on his way is you'd give him enough money and letters of recommendation so he could go from you to the next place he was going to. So if he needed a place to stay and you knew somebody in the next city, you'd write a letter and say, put this guy up. Sometimes you would actually send him with people from your household so they, they could come back and make sure that he got to the other city safely. So Paul is saying, I want to come spend time with you, and then I want you to send me along with your hospitality so I can get to the next place that I need to go. But Paul didn't view the Corinthians as a means to his end of raising money. When he looked at the church, he saw people. He didn't see dollar signs. See, it's, it's very easy for church leaders. It's very easy to see their supporters as tools to be used in their inspired, great project for God. And they lose sight of people. You know, who cares about people? I'm on a mission to save the world. That's not Paul. Paul loved simply being with the Christians at Corinth. Verse 7, he says, I don't want to just pass through. I want to spend time with you. I want to be with you, among you, live with you, know you, see how it goes with you, let you know, let you know how it goes with me. See, we can get so focused on the mission that we forget to enjoy the people that we are called to build with. Had 50 people in my house last night for a surprise birthday party for our daughter, Anna. And I just had a blast making sure people had a place to sit, got the food they needed, and just hanging out. The highlight of the evening was a conversation I had with Darlicia. Darlicia is 15. She is a new Christian. She is poor. And she's full of the love of God. And I just thought, wow, I get to be with Darlicia. <laughs> this, is, 
This is the kind of people we want to be. We just love hanging together. We love hearing one another's stories. We love being together. See, loving one another can be simply reflected in just liking to be together. Liking to have a meal together. Play a board game together. Simply enjoy each other's company. These are the kinds of relationships that move the church forward. It's not all about mission. It's about enjoyment of the gift of one another together. Now, that's how Paul thought about the people who were supporting him in his ministry in the church. But now we want to look at those people that Paul served with. If you look at verses 10 and 11, he talks about Timothy. And he's urging the church not to despise Timothy. That's the implication. You look at verse 12, you see it begins, now concerning. You see that there? Throughout this letter... Paul, when he writes now concerning, that's at the beginning of chapter 16, throughout the letter, they had written him a letter with a list of questions. So he's going through the questions. So he's answering a question. They wanted somebody to come visit them. They said, we know, we got problems, we need help. Would you please send Apollos? And so who does Paul send? He sends Junior. He sends Timothy. And he is concerned that Timothy will not be received the way Paulus would be. But you see here, Paul doesn't consider Timothy an inferior. He is doing, he says, the work of the Lord, as I am. So he's identifying Timothy as a peer. He's identifying Timothy as someone who's doing the same work as I am. Listen to him the way you listen to me. I think that's just wonderful. But the Corinthians wanted Apollos. They wrote and said, would you please send Apollos? How Paul treats Apollos is also fascinating. Apollos had been in the city teaching and preaching the gospel in the church's early history. And there was, if you know this book, in the early chapters, uh, there was a fan club, an Apollos fan club in the church. And uh, so the church breaks down into factions. Some say I'm lining up with Paul. Some say I'm lining up with Apollos. Apollos was a favorite. Our favorite pastor. Yes. The beginning of the chapters 1, 2, 3 of this letter, we find that some identified themselves with Apollos. And we find from the book of Acts that Apollos was... In, in a Corinthian culture, he would be more, you would like having him as your pastor better. Highly educated, a brilliant public speaker. Paul was theologically brilliant, but apparently they didn't appreciate his lack of polish in his public presentations. So they wanted Apollos. They wanted Apollos. So how does, how does Paul operate? How does he see Apollos? Does he see Apollos as a threat to his ministry? Does he see him as a rival? Does he see Apollos as someone who would take away attention or authority from Paul? That's not how Paul rolls here. Listen listen to what he says. Verse 12, I strongly urged him to visit you. 
Okay, he didn't send a message and say, hey, you might want to think about this. He didn't say, you know, some are asking, I don't think it's a good idea. I strongly urged Apollos to go be with you. Apollos turned them down. And it makes me wonder, did Apollos say, I'm not playing into the favorites game, so I'm not going now? We don't know. I'm guessing. But what's fascinating is that Paul didn't live for people's affection or loyalty. He knew that Apollos' theology and character were reliable. Why not ask him to go? He says, look, if they like him better than me, he's preaching the same gospel. I'm for him. There's a big temptation for Christian ministers, be they pastors, small group leaders, children's workers, men who travel and serve numerous churches. They can be tempted to identify the ministry with themselves. And so you get concerned when someone, you know, I I can get tested when people come after preaching and say, oh, yeah, I heard John MacArthur on the radio do that same passage. It was different than yours. I'm glad they heard John MacArthur preach. That should be our attitude. Tempted to identify ministry with ourselves. It's my church. These are my people. I founded the church. Implicit in that is I have special rights. I have rights to your affection, your loyalty, your financial support. But for Paul, it was the Lord's church. Belonged to Jesus. That's all that mattered. Paul's love and respect for people, members of the church, co-workers, even those who criticized him and rejected him, he still remained to all of them an open-hearted and generous man. It's astounding. It's amazing to me. So this is how he thinks about his supporters, his co-workers, Timothy who came up under him, Apollos who came alongside him. He is open-hearted. He is generous. He's encouraging whatever advances the gospel, whatever promotes the love of God and the truth of God among these people. I'm for it. But then lastly, in the last section of this chapter, we find Paul's love for the members of the church at Corinth. And this is a section of scripture that I find, uh, it's compelling. Let's read it. Verse 13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Achaia was the province where Corinth was the center city. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen.
Now, you wouldn't notice it because it's not our custom, but verse 13 is the common Roman formula for signing off on a letter. What do we write at the end of a letter? We say, sincerely, or yours truly, sincerely yours, and that that clues, uh, we're done now. We're coming to the end. The Romans didn't end their letters that way. They would end their letters with, be strong. Then you knew the letter's coming out. Or, stand firm. So just as the letter to Corinthians begins with the opening formula that was typical for Romans, grace and peace, uh, Paul ends the letter with a typical Roman formula. But Paul, as with everything, infuses it with the gospel. So in chapter 1, he opens the letter, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does the same here at the end in verse 13. He says, be strong, be watchful, stand firm in the faith. You not only have to know the gospel he's saying as he gets done, you have to persevere in it. You have to stand firm in it. Look at the elements of verse 13. It is fascinating. Be watchful. The devil and this world are continually throwing temptations and pressures for us to compromise. It is the normal Christian life to be pressured to compromise. We've got to keep our eyes open. What's going on around me? What are these influences? How are they affecting me? Uh, Pressure coming from work, from the neighborhood, from news media, from others talk about me. How, How am I going to respond? What's going on around me? Be watchful, but then stand firm. Stand firm in the faith. Much of the Christian life is simply refusing to compromise. Not so you can earn anything from God. Not because, wow, if I compromise, I'll lose my salvation. No, we stand firm because we believe all the good promises that have been made by our Lord to us. And so we refuse to step away from those promises. I'm not following those other things. They don't deliver. I'm standing with Jesus. And then the phrase, and I'm, I, I'm so glad the ESV translation keeps the original. Act like Men. Now, as you're very familiar, we live in a society that's dominated by feminist ideology. And that makes some translators, at least in my view, overly cautious in their translation. So they take act like men and they try to flatten it out. And you read in the NIV, it says, be courageous. But there's an assumption behind that. And the assumption is that Paul is saying... Act like men because men are courageous, but we don't want anybody to think that if we think men are supposed to be courageous, then women are cowardly. And so they flatten the translation. And I think the assumption they're making is a bad one, a false one. Listen, everything I know about women, and I've known some women in my life, Your call is to be as strong and courageous as any man. And you know that. Raise my girls to be courageous. So I don't think Paul is trying to compare men and women in this passage. He's not trying to say, well, men are courageous, women are cowards, act like men. Even you women, try your best. So what's he getting at? Well, we're not going to go there, but in chapter 13, he shows that... um, When I was a child, I thought like a child, but when I became a man, 
I put away childish things. The opposite of acting like a man is acting like a boy. How <laughs> boys act? Easily distracted. <laughs> Son, what are you, what are you doing? Uh, I don't know. Why did, why did you go there? I, I just did. Okay, we've got to act like men. We've got to keep our focus. Um, boys whine when the road is rough. I don't like it this way. Boys forget their duties. Act like men. Stand your ground. Keep your focus. Don't leave your duties. Stop complaining. Act like men. Mature adulthood requires that you know your commitments and you keep them. You get married and you remain faithful to your spouse. You have children and you deal with the constant demands they make on you and the enduring service and faithful training that's constantly at the most inconvenient times required of you. You go to work when you feel lousy because people need you. Act like men. So let's paraphrase so far. Keep your eyes open. Stand firm in trusting the God who gave you all those gospel promises. Act like men, not like children. And finally, be strong. Be strong. Be strong because you have the power to do whatever God requires of you, but you must exert yourself. Okay, the let go, let God thing? No. Hang on to God and let's go. That's, that, that's the biblical approach. Be strong. Use the strength God has given you. Fulfill your responsibilities. No backing off. Well, here's the problem. If you read verse 13 without verse 14, you can become just another ugly Roman. And so Paul has to qualify verse 13. With this, let all that you do be done in love. I have noticed over my lifetime that there are some Christians who feel responsible to confront the errors of their brothers and sisters. Sometimes they are responsible, other times probably not. The internet has opened up a whole new world of being able to criticize others, to be a watchman on the walls. And there are people who have been watchful, and they've been bold in calling out things that are wrong. But they are also belligerent and judgmental and quick to condemn. They're lacking in the essential element of love. Church, we've got to take a stand for truth, both in what we believe and how we live. We're not budging. But taking that stand doesn't mean casting aside our obligations to love one another. We must love one another. So when you, when you are watchful and standing firm and acting like a man, standing strong, you do that in love. 
do that in love. Time doesn't permit us from reviewing this entire book and noticing that while Paul is continually correcting the Corinthians, he corrects them in the context of his love for them. He shows them great respect. He expresses great affection for them, even though they have, some of them, have abused his reputation, misrepresented him. He defers to them when he can. He pronounces words of blessing and grace on them. He commends them for their use of spiritual gifts, even when they misuse their spiritual gifts. He affirms their efforts in things like prophecy, even when he needs to adjust them. I'll tell you what, I need a lot of correction. I want Paul-like people correcting me. People who are clear on the truth. People who act and do everything in love. We've got to aim for this. We've got to aim for love. We've got to aim to correct one another in love. We need each other. I don't want to give up on that value just because, just because people have abused uh, in, in, in judgmental attitudes, have criticized others. I'm not, I, don't want to, I don't want to give up on that. But it must be done in love. Parents, when you correct your child, are you a fellow, fellow sinner correcting your child, equally in need of the gospel of grace? Or are you superior to that child? I would never do that. Okay? It's been a long time since you've been eight husbands and wives, when we're in conflict, let's learn from Paul. Let's listen carefully. Let's express our affection, even in the midst of disagreement. Let's stand on the gospel. Let's not elevate our preferences to the level of gospel truth. You see Paul doing that in this book. Let us learn from him in our marriages. Let us learn from him in our interactions with one another. You know, I look around this room. I've known you all a long time. And we have sought to be faithful to one another. Let's not stop. I'm in a church now that's going on 40. And there's a tendency to be a peace faker and say, oh, well, that's just the way he is. No, we must correct one another. But everything we do must be done in love. In verses 15 through 18, Paul commends the household of Stephanus. Stephanus was the first convert in Corinth, and apparently he and two other men from his household traveled across the Aegean Sea from Corinth to Ephesus, where Paul was, to visit him and bring the questions that he answers in this letter. Paul clearly loves these guys. Um... Stephanus and his family, they were not prominent in gifting or influence. But what Paul points out in verse 15 is that this man and his family devoted themselves to the service of the saints. They weren't just waiting for a problem to land on their doorstep and say, oh, sure, I'll help. No, they devoted themselves to the service of the saints. 
I'm not going to mention any names. We've got people in this room who have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. This is a wonderful value. This is what makes a great church. So Paul says, be subject to people who serve like that. Now, what does he mean? Does he mean that they have some kind of office that, you know, because you've been serving for so long, yes, sir, got to do what you want? I, I don't think so. But I do think that sacrificial service gives you a certain credibility in certain situations. So it's more in the, in the spirit of Ephesians 5. 21. Be subject to one another out of reverence to Christ. And when you see people who are devoted to serving the saints in their need, be subject to them out of reverence for Christ. Let them draw you in so you can help too. We've got to extend respect and appreciation to those among us who have sacrificed over many years to make even this church what it is today. That's what Paul's doing here. Fortunatus was not a name you would give to an upper-class person. It was usually the lower or working classes that you named your son Fortunatus. It means lucky. <laughs> okay? Not exactly a name that gets you into Yale. Uh, but Paul says, respect these guys. Submit to them. How do you build a great church? It's not with flash and polish. It's not how you build a great church. You build a great church with people like Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. People the entertainment world call boring. People who realize that it's not always the exciting new initiative that makes the church a place of grace, but enduring, faithful service. Week in, week out. So we see Paul, he doesn't just promote those people who give him money. He doesn't just promote those people who are co-workers. Those people who help him along his way. He just loves the servants of the saints. Even when their service might require simple menial tasks or being there for the hurting. These are the ones Paul wants to conclude his letter by giving a shout out. Notice he says in verse 18, they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. They refresh my spirit. Just hanging with these guys, okay? These are not, not ranking people. They're just the first converts who give themselves to serving the saints. They deliver the letter. Paul, Anthony Thistleton, one of the commentators I read on this passage said, Paul is saying, in effect, it was like having a little bit of Corinth come here to me to refresh me by being with these men. How cool is that? Another point where we see Paul's love comes through is the importance of greeting one another. In verses 19 to 20, Paul sends formal greetings from the church in Ephesus and the other churches in the surrounding region. He even mentions a specific church in a house, uh, Aquila and Prisca's house. He says they all individually send their greetings to you. Aquila and Prisca had lived in Corinth and worked there with Paul. For a Christian, a greeting is a special thing. So Paul reminds the church to greet one another in verse 20 with a holy kiss. Now, we got to talk about the kiss for a minute, okay? Because people get confused by it. Okay, I don't come from a big kissing culture, uh, and I don't fully get this. In Roman culture, a kiss of greeting was not erotic. It wasn't even necessarily affectionate. 
In Anthony Thistleton's words, it represents an expression of solidarity, mutuality, and respect for the people of God. It's a holy kiss in that it's reserved for the saints, literally the holy ones. Okay, so this, there are signs of affections that we give to other Christians, signs of respect, signs of you're my brother, you're my sister, we are equal, that we don't give to other people. Okay, when you go into the, some of you go into an office tomorrow, you're not going to go in and give a hug to everybody who enters the room. But we must find ways to greet one another that says, hey, we're the same. I respect you. We're joined together. I'm a pastor to a sizable number of young black men who live in and grew up in the hood. And one of the things that I have learned that just endlessly delights them is how to do the dap. Does anybody here know what I'm talking about? No, you don't. You look like a very white audience. Okay, a few. All right. Grab hands like this, pull into the shoulder, pull back, hold on to each other's fingers, pull them away. Okay? Now, why do I do that? Because they laugh because I do it like an old white guy. Um, But what am I saying to these young men? Hey, we're brothers. We're the same. You're not just a tattoo artist to me. You're part of me. We're in the same mission together. We're a part of the same family together. And so we've got to find ways to express that. And Paul is saying, look, before I leave, I just want you to know we're together. We're solid together. We have mutual love and affection for each other. We are brothers and sisters. That's why the greeting is important to Paul. That's why he ends this letter He says, I respect you, Corinthians, as my equal in the family of God. Doesn't matter your age or your wealth or your education or your position in the church. Doesn't matter whether you have opposed me and criticized me. I greet you as my equal, as my brother, my sister, bought with the same blood of Christ. Greeting is just a simple way of saying, physically expressing our love for each other in the Lord. So we've got to find ways to do this. It might be a hug, might be a warm handshake, but physical displays of affection for one another, appropriate to the gender and age of the person you're greeting, okay? For little boys, it's always, give me five. But it's a wonderful way of expressing our bonds together. And we need to adapt to the various cultures that we interact with. Some of the black ladies in my church appreciate a kiss on the cheek. So we adapt. We adapt. Then we come to the curious verse 22. After all this loving going on in this chapter, (laughs) if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. What's going on here? Well, our Lord come, you've probably heard it in the Aramaic because that's the way it is in the original. It's just this Maranatha. 
That was the church's cry. They get together saying, Maranatha. Oh yeah, Jesus come back. Lord come, return. But Paul is reminding the church that when the Lord does come back, I'm signing off with Maranatha, but you guys got to be aware. When he does come, for those who reject his love, they will be cursed by God. This is another act of love, is to tell people that if you don't turn to Jesus Christ, turn your life over to him, admit you are a sinner in need of his grace, you will experience horrible cursing and judgment, appropriate, holy judgment. And so he's saying, look, church, there are some of you, there are some of you who just because you, you hang with the church, just because you sing the songs, it may be that you have no love for the Lord. And if that is so, you will be cursed by God. So Paul wants to end with Christian hope, but he, he wants to remember that there are some who do not actually have that hope. He also wants to remind those who hear in his letter that if you refuse to refu- respond to the love of God in Christ with your own love, you face this curse. So if you are someone who d- divides the church through factions, if you reject the gospel Paul preaches, if you take one another to court, if husbands oppose wives or wives refuse to respect their husbands, if you humiliate those you consider weak, if you overlook the poor in the Lord's Supper, if you take pride in your spiritual gifts and so disrespect those not as gifted as you are, you might want to examine yourself and make sure that the love of God is certainly within you. If you conduct yourself without love, but only out of self-interest, you may find that your so-called faith is superficial and not real, and you are in fact under God's curse. And such a warning is as much an expression of love as is a warm greeting. And then the final line, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Love is the note on which this letter ends. Now, Paul, Paul's really careful in his word choice, okay? The ancients, when they wrote stuff, they picked their words carefully. You would think the last line would be, with love in Christ, Paul, amen. But he adds the words, with you all. See, he's saying, I'm thinking of each one of you individually when I sign off here. I'm thinking of the ones who've opposed me. My love to you. I'm thinking of the guy who was sleeping with his stepmother and the church was cool with it. I'm thinking of you. I'm thinking of the people who made a mess of the Lord's Supper. Some getting drunk, others having nothing to eat. I'm thinking of you. I love you all. I love you all. Those of you who promoted factions, I love you. Those who have failed morally, I love you. Those who have opposed me, I love you. I love you all. And my love, it's not for me. It's in Christ. 
It's in Christ Jesus. This isn't the one who died for me. It's the one who died for me, showed his love for me by giving to me. I can never give back. I can never earn this, and yet he's loved me. I'm going to love you the same way. I'm going to love you in Christ Jesus. For It's completely Pauline. This is, this is saturated through his letters. Just as God has loved me, the chief of sinners, so I send his love, his love, and my love to you. So you see how important this chapter is? This is a community-shaping chapter. This is a church-shaping chapter. We break 1 Corinthians down into chapters on love, chapters on gifts, chapters on marriage, chapters on divorce, uh, chapters on, on lawsuits, chapters on factions. This ties it all together. What binds the church together? Is it our common doctrine? Well, we have common doctrine. Is our common mission, our common attendance at the same meetings? Those things are all essential. You can't have a church without those things. Not an effective church. But it's love that binds us together. See, faith in Jesus Christ produces love. You have faith in him, you experience love, and you become a lover. And that's what binds the church together. doesn't matter whether you meet in a park in Juarez, Mexico, where my friends started church. Marcelo's been to. Doesn't matter if you meet in an elementary school. Doesn't matter if you're all like Darlicia, just living in a difficult home, hard to get by. Doesn't matter if you're wealthy or you're poor, skillful or not. Love binds a church together. Now, having heard chapter 16 and seen that this is Paul loving the church, chapter 13 makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? Chapter 13 is directly applied to some thinking they were superior because of their gifts of tongues and prophecy. But let's close and listen. Just listen. Close your eyes and listen to what this apostle who loved this church had to say. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love.